we continue on in 1 Samuel, uh, we are going to try to tackle all 35 verses of uh, chapter 15. And this is, um, as I mentioned earlier, this is a tough passage. We're talking about radical obedience. Now, just that by itself doesn't sound um, too crazy, but when you hear the context of this obedience, it's going to stretch you. And we'll get into some good uh, theological conversation over it. And um, yeah, I honestly don't know how you're going to respond, but there's a good chance uh, you will either leave tonight um, angry, confused, frustrated. I pray that that doesn't happen. Or um, overwhelmed by the goodness of Jesus on the cross and more in love with him. And that's what I'm praying happens. I think all preaching should lead to that. And so if something uh, messes up along the way, then we'll know it was on my end. But uh, we're talking about radical obedience. And uh, I think most scholars would say that chapter 15 is all about uh, the Lord rejecting King Saul. So Saul being the first king in Israel, um, had some ups and downs in his kingship. He is being rejected, um, not his, his standing with God as much as his kingship uh, tonight. And so David is going to come into the picture starting next week, and, and the rest of 1 Samuel will be about Saul and David. And so tonight, though, Samuel, the prophet, even though he's basically retired, he's got this one last duty here with uh, with Saul, and uh, the context is um, is that God has asked Saul and the Israelites to carry out a promise from 400 years ago to kill an entire uh, group of people, the Amalekites, and um, and as part of that, God tells them to kill women and children, and. We're gonna we're gonna come face to face with that. I think I think most of us in our minds, if we thought of ourselves as leaders, we would have certain ideas of what would make God want to reject us as a leader. Um, maybe it would be sexual immorality. You'd say, yeah, that you shouldn't be a leader if, if you're sexually immoral, or uh, if you hurt somebody physically. Um, that that certainly seems like it could disqualify you. Maybe uh, murder. That would be a big one. <laughs> Uh, but what if God rejects you because you didn't murder the people he said kill? Now, good news, he's not going to ask you to kill anybody, so let's just get that straight. Bad news is, for Saul, he didn't, he didn't do all that God told him to do, and he's rejected. And so, um, we're going to walk through that tonight. I think one thing we're going to pick up through this is recognizing that what is uh, is radical in regards to obedience to God for us in the church and what God's idea and his word um, shows us is radical are two different things. I don't know what's radical to you. Maybe it's perfect church attendance. Uh, maybe instead of going on one mission trip to Mexico uh, every couple years, you, you go like to two places, um, maybe even two mission trips in one year or you give more than your tithe. I don't know what's radical uh, for us, but what's radical to the Word of God um, or in the Word of God is is different. And so I hope that you leave here uh, passionate, and, and I'll remind you one last time. The end goal of tonight is to fall more in love with Christ. <laughs> remind yourself of that as we walk through this. Let's jump in. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of, of angels, Lord of the heavenly realms, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now that's... Again, 400 years ago, but it's being brought up as something God wants Saul to carry out. Verse 3. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. 
right, before we even get into um, our, our bullet points for tonight, let's ask ourselves this fun question. Why would God kill women and children? We're going to start light tonight. This is what, you know what, though, this is why I love expository preaching, where you've got to walk verse by verse, because you can't skip this stuff. Like, you've got to address it head on. Why would God allow this, command this, the killing of women and kids? So right off the bat, I've got to, I've got to do my pastoral duty in saying that there is, to some degree, um, just some mystery in it. Isaiah 55, his ways, his, his thoughts are higher <laughs> as far as the heavens are above the earth than our thoughts are ways. And so there's an aspect of this that we just can't answer. But I think we can answer more, um, more than you might think. And right off the bat, uh, i got to say, God owes us nothing. If God does whatever God does, it is holy and it is perfect because God is holy and perfect, and, and he makes it holy and perfect. So um, you can take from your perspective what's right and what's justice in the world and who should be punished and how they should be punished, and, and you can try to apply that to God. And it doesn't, like, we d- he doesn't follow our rules. The only reason we have an understanding of justice and mercy and judgment is because of what we've gleaned from him. Okay, so we can't come on our high horse and say, you know what, God, you you need to explain yourself to us. You need to explain yourself. And and I'll also say this, before we get super self-righteous and say, how could God kill little babies? If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you're profiting right now by the death of God's own son. So if we're going to talk about little babies, if we're going to talk about uh, humans who deserve to die, don't forget there was one who did not deserve to die, who freely died for all, including those women and kids. So, so let's not get too self-righteous in this. I think we've got to ask ourselves, I love, I love this, by the way. This is fun for me. I, it shouldn't be so fun, but it's fun to address the hard stuff. I think you've got to ask yourself two questions within this question. The first one is, what does God benefit from the killing of women and kids among men and, and the animals and all that other stuff? And then number two, and this is m- the harder question, morally, how can God get us involved? Like, why would he get humans involved? Because it's one thing for him just to flood the earth and say, boom, you're all dead. It's another thing for him to say, hey, you, kill you. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit. First one, how does God benefit from killing women and children? Well, God gets the glory from every human life. You see, Isaiah 43 uh, and verses 1 through 7 make it clear that every human being was created for the glory of God. That is your basic premise, understanding for the purpose of every person's life. The way that plays out is different. But everybody's created for the glory of God. Everybody's created for the glory of God. Romans chapter 9 is really difficult, but it brings this up and talks about it uh, in, in clear detail. And it, it brings up this specific example. It brings up uh, the Pharaoh and the ten plagues in Egypt. If you remember that story when, when Moses was trying to lead his people out of Egypt, and yet um, you see this Pharaoh, he, he has his heart hardened over and over and over after each one of these plagues. Instead of just letting them go, it's hardened. But what does it say happened back in Exodus? It says after each one, and the Lord hardened his heart. God hardened his heart. And so Romans 9 says that God, being creator, created some people for honorable use and some for dishonorable. And that by creating some to show his wrath, he's actually then giving others the opportunity to show his mercy. You see, love and mercy doesn't mean anything if there's not wrath and justice, right? Love and mercy don't mean anything if there's not a flip side to it. Like if God just created us as robots and we don't have any free will, and we're just like, yeah, we were created to love God. We love God. That's what we're programmed to do. You can't do any different. Man, is that love or is that slavery? But, but love is, you've got the choice. I'm going to draw you to myself. Or I'm going to make you want me. And you get to choose. You get to choose. You see, this is going to be hard. But all of mankind, hum- humanity has to have this basic understanding. It is better for a human being to be born 
and be tormented and live a horrible life and be an unbeliever and die and go to hell than it is to have never been born at all. I'm not saying this is fun to think about or to talk about. You say, well, how in the world is it better for that to happen than to have never been born at all? Because the way that we reflect God's glory, one reason among many, is that we reflect his invisible attributes. And we all love it when we reflect the grace and the mercy, don't we? We all love it when we can say, we're children of God, he saved us. But even reflecting the wrath of God is better than to never have been born at all. To reflect in your life the justice of God. The justice of God is better than to have never been born at all. Simply being born and reflecting God as creator is better than to have never been born at all. You got to really love living for the glory of God. To have that kind of understanding. And so if we're created in his image, as it says, we don't just reflect his attributes by the way we behave, we reflect him with our own destinies. And some of our destinies, and people are dying today, and some are going to hell. And that should break our hearts. some are reflecting his justice obviously by punishment for rebelling against him and some his mercy by faith in Jesus this is why we preach the gospel to all nations we, we want him over here am I right but God gets glory from all his creation Second question within that, this is the harder one, this is the moral one. Why would he bring mankind into his, his plan to kill these people? Well, context is key. Context is key. Deuteronomy 25 shows us most clearly, but Exodus uh, has a passage about it. Numbers has a passage about it. The Amalekites. Okay, here's what was going on. 400 years earlier, as uh, as Israelites were leaving Egypt in the Exodus, there was a group of semi-nomadic people called the Amalekites who they snuck up behind the Israelites while they were faint and weary, and they picked off the women, the kids. They picked off those who, who couldn't hold themselves together anymore, who couldn't, and they just killed them. They were basically inland pirates, and that's what they were known for. They were barbaric, okay? They were barbaric. So we say, man, why could God kill men and women? Listen, hey, if, if we understand as we do through Scripture that the punishment for sin is death, why are we surprised when some in the Old Testament got that? Like, we were surprised. Like, our, our understanding of God's grace on the cross, it, it is lacking if we are surprised when we actually read in the Bible that some just flat out got the consequences dealt to them that were promised for those outside of Christ. I'm not saying we take pleasure in this stuff, but it's hard. And in Deuteronomy 27, God said, when he saw his people tormented by the Amalekites, and God said, they do not fear me, he said this, he promised, I will blot them out. I will blot them out. So Saul knows, and we're going to see evidence of this in a few verses, that he's fulfilling, by the Israelites getting together and killing these people, he's fulfilling a promise that was 400 years ago of justice for his people. What if I told you, um, what if I told you I had the opportunity to make some college kids homeless and, um, and I took that opportunity and I loved it? What if I said that? Most of you would say, that sounds weird and mean. But if I then told you that there was a day in early August, several years ago, uh, that three young football players from a local university sat down in my living room and, uh, across from my wife and I who were desperate to rent our house out as we were about to move to Lynchburg, Virginia, and we couldn't afford that payment anymore. And they said, this is a great deal for us. And we said, this is a great deal for us. And we signed that contract, and everything's beautiful in the beginning. And then in a month or two, we start seeing pictures on Facebook, 
and our house <laughs> ain't looking quite like it was when we left. And we come home a few months later in early December, knowing we're 20 hours away, but we had a chance to come home for Christmas. And I go down into my own basement to see a refugee camp where we were these people, these, these college students had had, uh, we had heard rumors of other people living there, but there were five to eight people living in our house. Um, and, and it was a small house. They had set up curtains and they were all just living throughout. It was just ridiculous looking. They had made a, a one bedroom basement into four or five bedrooms. They were throwing parties all the time. Things were trashed. We could tell the toilet didn't even look like it worked. Like there were, we, we, we could just tell there were issues. And then within the month, they stopped paying. We couldn't get a hold of them. So now we're 20 hours away. We, they're trashing our place. They're breaking their contract. They deserve to be kicked out. And we, as the victims, like, what are we going to do? And by the grace of God, they were kicked out. Uh, and we had some friends from the church clean our house, and we sold our house. You say, well, that makes sense. There was a time that was a beautiful, beautiful <laughs> thing being created, and there was a time where it went horribly wrong, and justice had to be carried out. You see, when you hear the background story, things start to make sense, do they not? People aren't as innocent as we like to think. You could even flip it this far in saying, and Romans 9 does, you look at a situation like Sodom and Gomorrah. God saw these people deserve to die, and boom, he carries it out like that. He waited 400 years for the Amalekite. 400 years. You look at this right off the bat, and you say, how could God kill women and children? I look at this and say, what kind of an amazing God has patience for 400 years to let them survive and get it together and repent? seeing this nation called Israel who's reflecting the glory of God and they're a light in the desert. One last thing I'll say about this. So can we ask, or we, we better ask, is there any way possible that God would ever ask now us to do anything like this? Again, context is key. There was a time where God functioned as the king over Israel, not just in a hypothetical sense, but even in a military style, um, leading them into the promised land here. And so you see this passage and a couple others where, where you see like Jericho, where God says, kill everybody. Don't leave anything standing. Don't leave anything standing. And it's in context of God leading his people into the promised land. Number one, we ain't got no promised land we're going into. God's not leading us into military battles anymore. Number two, the Israelites functioned back then, pre-Jesus on the cross, as administrators of justice. We, post-cross, are ministers of justice. So they killed so that the Israelites could live. Jesus now died for us, so we live so that others won't die. And we point to the cross. We say, nobody got to die anymore. Place your faith in Jesus. Our mission is completely different. So do not leave here and say that God has asked you to be a psychopath. <laughs> My standards for preaching have, have lowered. I'm sorry, I don't have a lot of expectations. All right. Verse 4. That was just the first three verses. This is going to be good. We better hurry up, huh? So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. So their army has increased <laughs> in recent years. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So again, that was 400 years ago. Saul knows that he's carrying out a promise. And he, in the midst of it, it's not like it's just a go kill everyone in the world. They see the Kenites, man, they, didn't, they, they feared God. They were good to the Israelites. Saul's letting them live. So the Kenites departed from, the, from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep 
and the, of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs, and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Uh-oh, let's stop there. All right, let's go back to our theme. You want to live radically obedient to Christ? You got to take the details serious. You got to take the details serious. It's all about the details. To some degree, everyone in mankind, more than likely, if you live long enough, everyone's going to be obedient to Jesus to some extent. Now, they might not know it. They might not have the heart for it. But even criminals can open a door for someone, right? Even criminals can show a little bit of kindness even once in their life. And in doing so, whether they knew it or not, they're obedient to Christ. So the issue isn't, are we going to be obedient to Jesus? Because people, even unintentionally, can be obedient to Jesus. You love someone, you show kindness to someone, and you're fulfilling, to some extent, the commands of Christ. The issue is whether we are willing to go all out. Whether we, we care enough to be obedient in the details, no matter what it costs. No matter what it costs. John 14, I love it. Jesus says this. He says, those who have my commands and keep them love me. So the degree in which you keep his commands might just be the degree in which you love him. You could say all day, I love you, Jesus. I love you. Listen, if I called my wife once in a while and said, hey, listen, I know I haven't been home in, in two months. And I've just been hanging out across town doing whatever I want to do. But I love you. She'd say, that's lip service. Because you're not around, you don't serve us, you don't care for us, you don't take care of us. The degree in which you obey Jesus is the degree in which you love him. You don't have to, this is not a guessing game, right? Because here's the thing, nobody's got to convince me to serve my wife and son. I love them. I'm falling more in love with them every day. Ain't nobody got to convince me to go all out. Uh, have you ever have you ever been lifting weights or exercising and, and you know like oh I've kind of hit that plateau and so you turn it up a notch and you go all out and you're just working and working and man you're sore all over again and it's just a pain or maybe it was finals week and you said you know what I gotta I gotta pass this class and I'm gonna cram and so you stay up all night long cramming 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 for that test. Or maybe you pinch every penny that you got because you want to get out of debt. You want to save up for retirement. You want to bless people. Listen, everyone in the room knows, yeah, yeah, I've been in, in one of those things. Why? Nobody had to convince you to do those things because in your mind, you had set your mind and your heart on this idea. It's worth it. It's worth it. Nobody has to convince you to do things that you believe are worth doing. So here's what it sounds like when we say, you know what, man, I got saved a few years ago, and I don't cuss as bad as I used to. Um, I mean, just when I'm around certain people, I do a little bit. Or you know what, I used to gossip a lot, but most days at the office, I don't, I don't gossip anymore. Or you know, man, when, I, when I'm with other believers, and I come to church stuff, like I'll seek God, and I think it's genuine, but when I'm by myself, I mostly just watch Netflix and post weird stuff on social media. Say, so what is that really saying? See, because there's a lot, there's some obedience in there. But then in the details, there's some disobedience. What it's really saying is, Jesus, you're worth this much, but you're not worth everything. You're worth this much, but you're not worth everything. And this is why this is so important. It's not because we got to do everything perfect. God knows when he saved you, you can't do everything perfect. If you could, he wouldn't need to save you. So this isn't about guilt tripping us into, man, we got to just be perfect in every little thing. Oh, there's pressure, there's stress. No, it's an understanding. Jesus was obedient to death. He gave everything. He didn't skimp on the details. He was fully obedient my understanding of his love is increasing, my obedience is increasing, and an unbelieving world is going to see that and say, what do they have that is worth it? What do they have that's worth it? Because people know what it's like. When you go above and beyond, you got, you got to really love it. 
We don't just go above and beyond for fun. We're lazy, are we not? We take the details serious. Let me ask you this. What, um, what's God been asking you to do lately that you're giving him 99%? Because here's the thing. Saul killed the women at Gibeah. He killed them. The stuff that we think would be the hardest part, they killed them. But they kept some of the things back. They did 99% of the job, but they kept the best stuff from destruction. And did God say, use your mind and be a good steward? No. He said, devote all of it to destruction. You've heard it said many times, um, even this past weekend, delayed obedience is disobedience. That's, that's true. Um, but partial obedience is disobedience. Everybody's obedient to some degree. But partial obedience is also disobedience. Verse 10. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret. We're we're, going to park on that a bit. I regret. Three times in chapter 15, God says, I regret making Saul king. That I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry. That's a good leader there. You want to know what a good leadership looks like? You feel what God feels. You break for what God breaks. You love what God loves. You hate what God hates. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, <laughs> oh, you know when you're frustrated with someone, and then they just, they just push you just a little bit further? <laughs> Samuel and Saul, they got that going on. Samuel's going to confront him. And God has rejected you. And he here, hears about Saul. Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. So Saul's out there making idols for himself. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I love that. Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. Second thing we see, if you want to follow Jesus radically, you've got to understand, you cannot follow Jesus on your own terms. You cannot follow Jesus on your own terms. So here's what we know right now. God asked Saul to do something really hard. He did most of it, but not all of it. Now he's justifying his disobedience. He's explaining a way why he could fully uh, fulfill what God told him to do. Again, it said back there for the first time, out of three times that we'll see by the end of this chapter, God regretted making Saul king. What does that mean? Like, did God make a mistake? I mean, God's God. He knows everything. He knows before he even made Saul king, he was going to make Saul king. So did he make a mistake? Well, some of your translations might say grieve. Some of them might say sorrow instead of regret. The ESV uses the word regret. But the Hebrew word um, simply means uh, to, to, to grieve. So it wasn't that God made a bad decision or that he somehow um, is just a bad decision maker. It's that his heart is broken over Saul's disobedience. And as a fun side note, the only other time the word regret is used in relation to the emotion of God is uh, in Genesis, right before the flood, when all of mankind had gone astray. And God says, I regret making them. Then he chose Noah, a righteous man. And right after here, he's going to choose David, a righteous man, to take over for Saul. So interesting parallel. Here's what's important. Not only does this give us some good insight into what what hurts God's heart. But notice how he doesn't say, I'm sick and tired of Saul's past. So I regret making him king. 
I, I, I am so tired of the inabilities and lack of talent from Saul. So I regret making him king. I can't stand his insecurities. So I regret making him king. No. Most of the stuff you and I struggle with, that's not what's ticking God off. What's ticking God off is God says, go. And Saul says, no. Saul is disobedient. That's a beautiful thing to know right now. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life, what's happening in your world, what you feel like you're disappointing God in. God cares about you understanding the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the natural response to that is give your life to him to simply say, I got nothing. I want to follow you. I will do whatever you say. God, you, you this is nothing. My, my submission to you right now is nothing compared to the message I just heard about your son on the cross. Like this, I, can't, I, I can't even believe I'm talking about my own submission right now. I'm just overwhelmed by your grace and your goodness. And then you start to walk in the spirit in obedience. And that's what God cares about right now for you. Don't forget that. You see, Saul thought he was going to be praised because he did 90, 95, 99% of everything God told him to do. So he's thinking, I'm going to be praised. And Samuel's like, you're going to lose the kingship. Talk about different expectations for what God was wanting. How many of us feel like, man, I'm doing pretty good? Been going to church lately, started serving. Man, I give a few dollars when I have it. Oh, I'm doing pretty good. Now, is it bad to recognize obedience in your own life? No. What's bad is when you rest on your obedience and not the finished work of Jesus on the cross. What's bad is when you rest on your current obedience, stopping you from being obedient tonight and tomorrow. Thinking, hey, <laughs> 10% of obedience to God is better than the 2% I gave him a year ago. I'm, I'm moving in the right direction. God's saying this how it works. I want all of you right now. You see, in God's economy, complete obedience is worth more than livestock management. And so what Saul thinks he did good, justifying his actions, is ticking God off. It's crazy to think if God asks us as a church, you know what, by faith I want you to put more money than you've ever seen or know or think you could accumulate in purchasing a new, a new place to be a missionary training center, to be a house of worship. And we said to the people, hey, financially it's not feasible, so we're going to back off. You might be praised by man saying, hey, you're very smart, good stewards of money. And God might say, I hate you. That's not the way my, my people work. The goal is not rational thinking and by hate i'm not talking about he hates you he hates your decision making that's what he hates about saul he wants his people to walk by faith what um what have you put on the burner just on the back burner things that you're reading in this book and you're like okay I know he's telling me <laughs> I'm commanded just like everyone else, but like I, I just I, I don't want complete obedience because it costs me something. What about sexual purity? Well, I just I feel like hey, we're not going all the way, so just a little bit of the way is, is better than what we could be doing. That's not what God God didn't say. Just don't be as bad as you could possibly be. <laughs> There's not even a hint of sexual immorality. What about disciple making? He says, go make disciples. Well, you don't understand. My personality is not one that's outgoing. I don't really know. I, I don't think I understand this well enough to talk about it. Do you want to follow Jesus? Yeah. Can you say to someone else, hey, follow Jesus. Let's, let's do this together. Uh, my personality is not that way. But listen, God didn't ask about your personality. He knows how he created you, and he knows how he's commanded you, and he knows how he's equipped you with the Holy Spirit. You're, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Maybe he's asked you to be generous. Maybe it's not even given to the local church. Maybe it's just someone in your life and saying, bless them financially. But then that bill pops up. See, obedience has never been conditional based on ease or convenience. And some of us, when some of us will follow Jesus as long as it doesn't cost us anything. And Jesus 
is saying, following me doesn't start until it costs you everything. <laughs> A couple gals um, needed some gas money the other day to get back to the town they were living in. And they made it very clear to me um, that they were in a, uh, a sexual relationship together. They had children together. And, and they, they just they wanted me to know. I could tell they wanted me to know right off the bat kind of where they were. I said, we can't. No church will help us. I said, let's go, let's go get some gas. Let's get some gas. As I was talking to them, uh, they made it very clear. And you could tell there was some pride in it. But they, they wanted me to know that they go to church. And that their pastor, she, um, she is very supportive of their physical relationship together. And, and that, um, that, that they're, they're courageous and bold for being who they truly are uh, in the church. And she leaned over the car, one of them did, and looked at me and said, because my pastor, she tells me, as long as you believe in God, as long as you believe in God, he'll bless you and give you good things in life. She said it with a smile. I wish I could tell you that in the spirit I had the perfect thing to say and they all bowed a knee to Jesus and we all three got saved and baptized at the gas pump. Like I wish, I wish I could tell you that's the way it went. I was stinking angry. I was angry. I was angry at that pastor. Like, what do you do with that? Where do you, like, it's not, hey, we hate you. Okay, let's talk. It's, we're affirmed by you. <laughs> we, we believe we're good with God. We are, God affirms us. The bottom line is, that's obviously a big illustration for the idea that we don't follow Jesus on our own terms. We do exactly what he says, how he wants it. But I wonder, even though that's a, that's a big, illustrious illustration, I wonder how many of us quietly have similar situations. We're comfortable in ways that God said, I don't want you comfortable. I want you out of your comfort zone right now. But hey, no one's confronting me about it. So I'm just going to stay here. And yet nobody's saying, hey, that's obviously wrong. Let me say this, back to John 14 before I move on real quick. Jesus says, whoever keeps my commands loves me. And then after that, there's a promise. And he says, I will reveal myself to them clearly. Listen, there, even if there weren't blessings in obedience, we'd still be obedient because God's God and we're not. And he's worthy of it. But there are blessings. Some of us, one of the reasons why we're not seeing the power of God in our lives, why the Holy Spirit is put in a little cage deep down in our soul somewhere instead of a roaring lion fanning into flame on a daily basis, is because we've put limitations on our obedience and God has put then limitations on his revelation. If you want to see the power of God, you've got to step out obediently into the uncomfortable places. If you're not seeing God's power right now, you, you don't need God's power, right? You're just doing what's comfortable. I'm not talking to you guys, I'm talking to the other Christians too. Trying to lighten it up a little bit. I can tell things are getting tense. All right, moving along here in verse 17. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? So this is putting accountability, responsibility back on Saul. The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then? Did you not obey the voice of the Lord? These next verses, there's, there's just beauty in these next four or five verses. Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, 
I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. So like they're, they're chest to chest right here. Why didn't you do what God said? I did do what God said. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. I think he's, I think he's mishearing what God told him to do there. But the people, oh, this is, this is poor leadership. Remember, Saul, when, it, when things go bad, he separates himself from the people. If you're going to lead people, you are responsible. You get, they get punished, you get punished. First head that got to get chopped when something goes wrong is you. You're the leader. That's what being a leader means. But the people took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So he's justifying it. Like they took the good stuff to sacrifice to God. God's going to be happy. And Samuel said, now keep in mind, most of the time in scripture, when you see quotations like this, a lot of times it's pointing back to um, an early church psalm or hymn, if it's in the New Testament, or like an Old Testament quotation of something. Now this is obviously in the Old Testament, but it's in quotes because it's just powerful. It's in poetic form. It's just beautiful coming out of his mouth. This is from the Lord. Has the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrificing as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. You're hearing the heart of God right here. Sacrificing is good, but it's not in place of obedience. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. So sorcerers, He's saying, this is is bad, like people who deserve capital punishment. That's what rebellion in your heart is. And presumption or arrogance, thinking you you know the best way for yourself, is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people, this is the key, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Number three, you want to radically obey Jesus. You've got to understand, obedience is a heart issue. It's a heart issue. It's funny, when Saul was saying what he did for the Lord, he was kind of misunderstanding the words of the Lord. And then Saul, Samuel says, Saul, this is what he really said to you. And then Saul's like, oh, I guess I, I, guess I, I, I didn't realize that. I guess I didn't realize that. You see, what, what Saul's doing is he's justifying his disobedience. He was hoping that rational thinking, instead of just direct listening, obedience, and faith, that rational thinking and, and taking these animals to sacrifice, that it would somehow please God. And again, you can't, you can't follow Jesus on your own terms. But I think we try to justify sin when we don't want to repent of it, right? We try to justify it. That story with those two girls at the gas station after um, they told me all about their pastor and telling them about um, how their relationship was okay with God and all that stuff. They then said afterwards, oh, by the way, doesn't our pastor, um, she has a gay daughter. You see, when you when you come face to face with struggles, you can either repent or you can sympathize and compromise. How many people who have bad theology, it's not because they woke up and said, I got bad theology. It's because something happened in life and they didn't want to repent and so they just accepted it. They changed God rather than their behavior and their minds. But I think we justify all the time. Um, I've been trying to work out lately. I know you can tell. <laughs> it's pretty obvious. Um, Another day, uh, we, all, we came to work. There's four or five of us usually around during the day at points. And um, Jade, she's, she's new to the leadership team here. She's a volunteer leader, and she does social media communication stuff. And, and she's, she's awesome. Um, I don't, I, as a leader, I can't play favorites, but um, she's by far the best team member we have right now. Let's just be honest. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Sorry. Sometimes you just got to poke just for fun a little bit. Anyway, she sent, uh, she sent the rest of us um, a picture Thursday morning of a box of donuts because the Hertz Donuts truck was in town, you know, whatever. And, she's, and it just said, because I care. And there was all these donuts. And, she, and we're like, gosh, Jade, she's getting it right. She's doing so good. And so anyway, 
Um, I had a donut, and if you've had a Hertz donut, you know they're not like little Krispy Kremes you could eat like six before you even blink. They're, they're kind of hefty, like they're little meals, okay? And they, sh- they should fill you up to some degree. Anyway, we all had one in the morning. I was like, okay, that was great. And then she said at about noon, she said she was going to go to Manhattan for a meeting. And I'm thinking to myself, when she said that, I'm thinking, is she taking her donuts? <laughs> She's taking her donuts or what? And so right after lunch, I came back. She was gone. I went straight down to her office. She, she can't lock it by design. We wouldn't let her lock her donuts in there. And I saw her, the donuts were there. I thought, okay, cool. No one else around. I got another donut. I'm like, okay, I should stop. Two hours later, though, you know when you reach that thresh point where you like you eat so much that you just get hungrier again? Um, a couple hours later, I came back down, and I went into Logan's office. And, uh, and I said to Logan, I said, listen, dude, you got to split a donut with me. I can't, because two and a half sounds way better than three, does it not? And, and I don't want, like, Jade's going to come back, and she said she wanted, like, some of these donuts. Like, she had, there were specific ones, but we're eating all of them. Like, three guys are eating most of these 12, and, and I'm looking at them. I'm like, oh, gosh. And so I was going to walk away and just not, not do it, but Logan finally convinced me to stay and, and, and eat the donut with him. <laughs> and then James came in because he heard the donut conversation, and he had to get in, and and we started talking about how we had each eaten two or three and how this was getting ridiculous and what we were going to do and, um, and how we we're going to explain it to Jade. And we started to pipe up with different, different uh, excuses. And, and James said, hey, you know, if she sees that there's still a bunch of donuts left, she'll probably think, well, what's the point in bringing donuts? Next time I just won't. And I said, you're right, James. Matter of fact, here's how it works. I've worked in offices before. If somebody brings food and you don't, eat all of their food it's like a rejection like you listen (laughs) we will spiritually devastate her if we don't eat all of these donuts we could bless her let's take let's take care of it so we ate our donuts um we haven't even talked about it with her yet since i just i just told her i was like can i talk about this in a sermon um so she'll hear about this when she listens but anyway we justify our sin. That was, that was a long way to get to that, wasn't it? It was fun, though. I had to get there. We, we justify our sin. You see, Saul's excuse was peer pressure. The people did it. The people did it. His, his disobedience was all about the people did it. What's your excuse? For some of you, um, for some of us, I'm included in this, is laziness. It's, well, I'm just, I'm just lazy. I'm just thinking, man, how can we and we say that when we hear the gospel and then we there's laziness we understand our flesh is powerful but the spirit is more powerful um some of us we say well we, do, we just don't have time we don't have time god asked me to be ser- to serve him but i got busy with other things some say man i just don't feel like i have the power i know god wants me to be obedient in this specific way um man, when it comes to sexual purity when it comes to, to different things i know he wants me to be obedient i just don't feel like i got the power i feel overwhelmed by the flesh some of us say well, i, I want to be obedient but like i don't know all about the bible and so i just and i'm not a good reader and i can't i just don't, I, I don't even know where to start Some say, well, I would be more obedient, but I need like an accountability partner. Did God not give us his Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead? That is living in this dead, yet walking body of flesh and overwhelms it, should overwhelm it with power? Did he not give us his revealed word to tell us what his commandments are? We got countries all over the world begging begging for a bible in their translation we got bibles all over our houses did he not give his son and then his spirit to dwell inside of us how much more accountability do you need it's good if your buddy and your roommate wants to be accountable you are accountable to god god is everywhere we don't need more accountability god is god he know he, he sees us Let's be honest, the real issue isn't laziness, lack of knowledge, lack of time. The real issue is our hearts. It's a lack of desire. It's a lack of love for God. Samuel's words tell us 
The foundation for obedience is not just rules and behavior modification. The foundation is God wants an intimate relationship with you. And he wants you to listen to him and obey and commune through what Jesus did on the cross. We have that opportunity. So here's the bigger question for us tonight. What's your heart condition? Because God's not going to command you something he doesn't equip you to fulfill. Like there's, you know, you, know, you know that, right? There's no command of Jesus that's a little bit too far out of your reach. In and of your flesh, of course, they all are. But with the Spirit of God dwelling inside, nah. No. And I know tonight some of you might be insecure. Because we talk about radical obedience and you're thinking, I'm so disobedient in all of the ways. Like, look at that. So, and you're just overwhelmed right now by your disobedience. Again, this isn't about guilting you into doing something. There's a big difference when it comes to our, our disobedience. Not as a, this isn't an excuse, but there's a big difference between somebody's intentional rebellion of God and I don't care about God, don't want nothing to do with God. There's a big difference between a nasty heart and a believer who feels beaten down by the world and who's just struggling to live in the Holy Spirit. But they want it, they, they, you want to please God. Don't overthink this. Don't overthink it. Some of us question our own salvation because of our disobedience. The reason we don't question our salvation is because of Jesus' obedience. That's what we're trusting in. And you're sealed with God's spirit. And even if you don't feel it overwhelming in you right now, you need to know, you just break it down. Do you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Do, do you want him to be the Lord of your life? Do you, do, you, do you want to follow God? Do you want to please him? Don't overthink it. Everyone in this room, including myself, you could, we could make a list of all the ways we fall short. That's not what's qualifying us tonight for salvation. It's the list of all the reasons Jesus is perfect in righteousness. God's never going to be looking at your own obedience as the primary means for your salvation. So that pressure needs to fall off your shoulders. He's seeing your obedience as the natural response for your understanding of the gospel. This is for your own good. Those who grasp the good news love obedience. Those who learn to walk in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, learn to walk in obedience. Last but not least, I'm about to make this quick. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So he's said that twice now. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. <laughs> How does that feel? Who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man. So we're talking about God when we say the glory of Israel. For he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. <laughs> Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted, again, third time, regretted that he had made, king, made Saul king over Israel. Last but not least, when it comes to radical obedience, it's not too late. 
It's not too late. One day, it'll be too late. But right now, in this moment, for you, it's not too late. One day being death or Christ's return. Saul sees that he's sinned and he repents. And see, Samuel says, nope, dude, it's over. And then he says, but seriously, I want to follow the Lord. And Samuel says, all right, let's do this. It ain't going to make you king. It ain't going to save face in front of the people. But if you really want to follow the Lord, then I'll walk with you. That's what disciple makers do. I'll walk with you. You see, Saul realized this day that he had lost everything. Sometimes that's the grace of God. When God brings you to the place where you realize, even through your own disobedience, some of us walked in here tonight thinking, man, I'm doing pretty good with God right now. And we're leaving here feeling like, gosh, there's so many areas that I'm, I'm just not quite adding up. It's the grace of God. Because what it needs to do is bring you straight to the place we should have been all along, which is, I got to fully, right now, I got to fully, utterly trust. Not in my own good works, but in the work of Jesus. Like, oh, that's got to be a reality for me today. Because I'm more aware than ever. You see, that's Christian maturity. Being more and more and more aware, even as you are obedient more and more and more, being more aware that you cannot bridge the gap on your own and trusting more and more in the good news of Jesus. When you get to that place where you say, I can't do this anymore. Physically, it might be your worst day. Spiritually, that might just be your best day. The other day, uh, Tara and I, I'll share this quickly. We, we were doing a project downstairs in Silas's room and in a spare room. And I was uh, sanding some drywall. I don't know if any of you have ever done drywall work. It is miserable work. And it gets everywhere. Now, I just thought, hey, I got like just a wall 10 feet across here, um, some seams. I put some mud on it. I just got to sand it a couple times. And in Silas's room, it was literally just a corner from like here to here. Surely the dust will not get everywhere. I start sanding away on this. And I see about halfway through, like, there's dust in the air. But when I got done, Tara looked at me, and she said, first off, I trashed, like, the whole room and Silas's room. It's all over his crib. It's all over everything. And she said, okay, so at any point, did you not see all the damage you were doing and then stop? Like, did you not think to stop? Just stop. Once you get into it, you get into it. We cleaned up the mess. For some of us, God's saying tonight, like, are you just going to stop? Are you just going to stop and let Jesus clean up the mess? Are you just going to trust? Guys, this, this sermon tonight, as I wrap it up, we talk about radical obedience Radical obedience only comes from radical love. And radical love is not a try-harder issue. Let the, let, the, let the bondage, let the guilt just fall off your shoulders. Radical obedience is about radical love, and radical love is not a try-harder issue. It's a sit at the feet of Jesus and get immersed, fall in love with the good news of Jesus. The church doesn't serve God out of guilt. The church serves God because we are a people set free. We're a people that start one hour looking at the truth of this world and this broken planet and see that women and children are dying and we have anger in our hearts. And by the time we see the gospel, we realize God is merciful. He is full of grace. I deserve, I am the Amalekites. Like, I am the women and children that deserve death. I am the men. I, like, that's me. I'll tell you what. If Crosspoint Church, or whatever local church you're a part of, if we fall in love with Jesus Christ, if we are blown away by the gospel more and 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 more, there is going to be nobody in this world 
There's not going to be a preacher who needs to stand up. There's not going to be a political leader who, who tells us what to do. There's going to be nobody who needs to convince us to radically obey God, no matter what the cost, no matter what it means. We're just going to do whatever he says. We're going to go to all nations, and we're going to reach out to every people group. We're going to serve the broken and the lowly. We're going to be generous to those who are poor in spirit and poor in every other way. We're going to just be the hands and feet of Jesus, and ain't nobody going to need to convince us otherwise. Matter of fact, they're going to try to stop us. <laughs> but it comes when we fall in love more and more and more with the Lord. So I don't know where you are with your love for the Lord tonight, but it can grow. But it only grows when you're sitting at the feet of Jesus. Let's pray.